3: it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A N G I. Or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a look at the continuing chaos of air travel with our regular Scott Myrowitz, followed by viewfromthewing.com founder, Gary Leff, and a chat about something called speed tape on airline wings. You won't want to miss this one. And then a subject we really haven't talked about with Henry Grabar, author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And you might be surprised about how much parking really does explain the world. First up,
1: Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month without auto pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: Scott Meirowitz, how are you, sir?
2: Great bear. Just actually landed in,
0: at an airport. So uh, perfect timing for a travel show. Well, the most amazing thing is: you, a) you landed; b) you're actually at an airport; and c) you live to tell the story. You're not you're exactly. not, you're not stuck on the tarmac. You know we we've had we've had so many cases in the, just in the last couple of weeks. You know the, the old tarmac delay rule. Let's talk about that for a second, since you just brought up the fact that you landed. Landing, I landed. Uh, I know. but I was only 20 minutes late. <laughs> that's considered early these days. But but think about but think about this. So many people land and never get to the gate for hours. So many people board a plane, push back, and never leave the runway for hours. And there's the tarmac delay rule that came into effect a number of years ago, which basically said that once an airline pushes back from the gate, if they keep you out there for more than three hours without returning to the gate, they're liable to a fine of up to $27,500 per passenger. So on a a loaded 737, you're already into seven figures. So the airlines are very well aware of that now. But here's the thing where they play the game. We just had people pass out. Five people pass out on a Delta Airlines flight in Las Vegas that was stuck on the ramp. And they were stuck on the ramp for, are you ready? Two hours and 45 minutes. That's when the airline decided we better go back or we'll get fined. Well, it was too late. The people had already passed out. And of course, Delta apologized and probably gave them some additional frequent flyer miles that they can't redeem. So the point is, what are we going to do with common sense? And the reason I'm asking this question, Scott, I know I'm doing all the talking here, but I'm on a rampage here. The reason why I'm, why, why I'm asking this question is, the airline there are no surprises. The airlines know when they push back from the gate, they're going to have to wait. So why push back from the gate to begin with? The airlines uh, know. The, the, the airlines know once they take off. When an airline pushes back from the gate, when the nose wheel moves in reverse, it triggers a signal that's sent from the airline or from the airplane to the airline's operations center that says, hey, we're leaving. So they then send a fax or a, tel- or a telex or actually an electronic message to their operations center and to all the, uh, uh, the stations that are involved, including the destination station, saying, hey, he's leaving. This is what time he's landing. So it's not that the plane landed and they're all surprised. No, they've known about it for seven hours. So what does this tell you about airline scheduling? They know when they schedule it, they're going to be late. This is wrong. You couldn't run a grocery store that way. You couldn't run a dry cleaner that way. You couldn't run, I mean, but airlines do it every single day.
2: I mean, there are so many reasons that go into it, but this summer in particular has been incredibly unpredictable We've had extreme heat. We've had these thunderstorms that have just been stronger and lingered longer. And, you know, everyone talks about winter blizzards and how bad they are for flying. It's actually thunderstorms that have the most disruptions out there. I'm not excusing the airlines by any means, but you have to think about two things. First, you need to push back from that gate to get in line with the FAA at that airport to actually take off. So that's the first part. Yeah but wait, I got to, but like, sec- wait'
0: wait, wait, I gotta stop you. First of all, there's not a runway in the world from Mumbai to Madison, Wisconsin that can accommodate more than 23 takeoffs in an hour. So I understand about getting in line, but how did that line get formed? It got formed because the airlines are allowed to schedule 34 departures or 40 departures at eight o'clock in the morning when they can only handle 23. So where are the airports in this? Why, why don't the airports say, look, this is our capacity. Don't don't mess with us. This is how many planes we can accommodate in an hour. Work it out. No, they let everybody schedule what they want. I mean,
2: you're seeing that fight right now in Washington, D.C., where they're talking about just adding seven additional flights, uh, flights and Congress is fighting over should they do this or should they not. Um, but the other reason why they have to push back from the gates is if, by some miracle, a plane gets in and lands, they need to get to a gate. And if you think back to the beginning of July, United had all those horrible operational issues right around July 4th weekend. And a big part of that was at Newark Airport, they didn't have gates for ready planes to get in. You couldn't have other planes leave. And then you have flight attendants who are on one plane trying to get to another. So you need more gates in some
0: situations. And again,
2: the airports don't have them.
0: Well, wait a second. Let's not go back to gates yet. Let's go back to schedule. You cannot schedule an airline when you know when you do the scheduling, you can't support it. They are hideously overscheduled at certain hubs. United is one at Newark. There's just no doubt about it. So on a
2: perfect day, it works. But you get one thunderstorm or an hour of disruptions, it doesn't. And that's... What happens every week?
0: But here's the deal. You're going to get hours of disruptions anyway because we have the air traffic controller shortage. 85% is their their staffing threshold, and we have three of four of the key ATC centers that are below 85%. So even in perfect weather, Scott, they have to slow down the flow because they don't have enough controllers to work the flights that have been scheduled. So it gets back to realistic scheduling. It really does because if you already have a line there, then you know the schedule's not working to begin with. Simple as that. Yeah.
2: yeah. The one thing I'll say here is that the airlines are making some progress by what they call up So if you look at 2019 versus today, more flyers ha- are flying today than pre-pandemic, but the actual number of flights is still down. And a big part of that is that airlines are using larger and larger planes. You have to remember that, 50-seat plane and that 300-seat plane use the same air traffic control resources, same amount of runway, and generally speaking, the same gate space. Uh, That wide body is going to need a little bit more, but still, that is one of the things that the airline industry is doing. But they were all very aggressive last Christmas. That's why we saw issues. And again, aggressive this summer, because people want to travel, and they are filling the planes, making record profits, as we all saw. So there needs to be either larger planes and fewer frequencies, or some sort of regulatory change here.
0: How about both? How about the airport say, this is how many flights we can accommodate in any given hour. You guys work it out. You can do, we, we can handle 23 takeoffs on any runway, period. Next item. Then... You have to reauthorize the FAA to hire more air traffic controllers. That's not going to be an easy fix or a fast fix. I know it's part of the FAA reauthorization bill, and you're not going to talk about that in just a minute. But the point is it still takes three years to train one of these guys or one of these women, and that's not going to happen overnight. It needed to happen 10 years ago, and the FAA, I think, is taking Quaaludes to have breakfast in the morning. I mean, it's, it's a little crazy there. And then you have to come up with realistic internal scheduling. You know, you talked about flight attendants who couldn't make their connecting flights. Nobody can make a connecting flight if it's a 33-minute connect time, even in the best of times. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So you have solutions here that have nothing to do with the pandemic. You have solutions here that have nothing to do with weather. It has to do with something that the airlines, two words, that the airlines have still not been able to embrace. Common sense. You can't be competitive and still have common sense. And, and and then schedule these flights the way you're scheduling them. It's a, it's a complete negative. I hope you agree.
2: I mean, I would love more common sense, but I understand all the politics out there. You know, take Newark Airport in New Jersey. That airport's not going to reduce its flying because the local politicians want it for the economy and want it to say that businesses can get nonstop to 500 destinations. And United... You know, isn't going to reduce flights there because it needs to compete with Delta, American, JetBlue, and other airlines in the New York metropolitan area. Um, you seeing it with Washington. You know, American has really turned that into a connecting hub, but they dominate that airport and can
0: do so. And they're fighting hard to keep competitors out of that airport. Scott, I'd also make the suggestion that it's not seasonal anymore. It's not just a long, hot summer. It's travel demand is back in such a big way that it doesn't show any signs of subsiding in any reasonable way.
2: I think the fall is going to be a big test. This is traditionally, you know, third quarter is the slowest, one of the slowest travel seasons. And corporate travel has not fully rebounded, but those small business travelers are out there like never before. And leisure travel has been so resilient. So you don't have the thunderstorms to deal with, but you do have capacity issues and high winds. And we're going to see. I'm a little bit more optimistic for September and October, but I'm trying to look at the glass half full
0: today. You know what? I'm just trying to find the glass. How about that?
2: <laughs> uh, I, I wish those poor passengers stuck on the plane for two hours and 45 minutes got some more water because I've been there and it is hot and painful.
0: Well, as somebody once said to me, it might have even been you. Um, you know, the airlines are now defining us as self-loading human cargo. So uh,
2: I, I did tell you that, but I will say I cannot take credit for it. Someone in the industry a long time ago gave me that phrase, but right, I think then,
0: about it every day. Then we've been stealing it since then, and, and, and appropriately so, I might add. Let's talk about the, uh, the FAA reauthorization bill, because... Some of the stuff that's in that bill is has needed to be done for quite some time in terms of authorizing enough budget to hire and train new air traffic controllers. But there's other stuff in that bill as well, isn't there?
2: Yeah, and I feel like I've been covering this industry for two-plus decades now, and I constantly hear about the FAA reauthorization and the need to give long-term funding to the government. This would do that, um, it, well, Long term, not in airline years, but in government years, it's about five-year reauthorization. And what you're going to get out of that is more air traffic controllers, in the ability to invest in technology, and the ability of the government to basically say, this is what we need to do, and we have the funding to do it. But there are a bunch of other things that are being debated, in it, including the constant question of, do we need a passenger bill of rights here in the United States?
0: Well, let's talk about that, because under deregulation, I, I can think of maybe four or five state legislatures that actually have passed legislation about passenger bills of rights. They were immediately taken to court, to federal court, by the airlines, claiming that the states had no jurisdiction because of deregulation. And the airlines actually were legally correct. And those, those laws never got enacted because the, the states did lack jurisdiction. Uh, so if we talk about a passenger yep. bill of rights... Congress has never been able to get any one of these bills out of committee um, for all sorts of reasons, some of them obvious, some of them not. But the real salvation really lies in the hands of the U.S. Department of Transportation in the, in the area of rulemaking. Now, we all know that Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has already announced a proposed set of new rules and regulations concerning passenger bills of rights and what you're entitled to when the airlines have a meltdown, which they continue to do. But those rules are not in place yet because of federal rules that require, you know, 60 to 90 days of public comment and hearings and everybody weighing in on what they think it's going to be. So we may not even see those new rules in what form, I have no idea, but we may not even see them until the end of this year or early next. So to put in a passenger bill of rights amendment in this FAA reauthorization bill essentially delays the bill, I think.
2: And that's what some of the argument has been. And you saw the House pass legislation on this that did not include a Passenger Bill of Rights. The Senate has been a little bit more aggressive in trying to get that in. But the talk in Washington has been, all right, we all can agree to fund the FAA. Let's table the Passenger Bill of Rights. And we'll be watching closely where the Senate goes with this. And if the two chambers, when they reconcile the bill will push this through or not my gut here is saying this is not going to be the year for a passenger bill of rights but you might see one or two smaller protections come out as part of this process
0: but you see i have a solution i have a legislative solution a slam dunk legislative solution to get congress to do a bill of rights you ready i'm ready okay invite all 435 members to go to either dulles or reagan tell them they're going to get on a flight to the destination of their choice and then leave them out on the runway for six hours. You'll get a passenger uh. bill of rights. I'm, I'm telling you, you you want to get Congress to, to unite in bipartisan anger? Put them on an airplane. Put them on a scheduled flight and keep them on the runway for six hours. You'll have legislation so fast you won't know what to do with it.
2: Uh, I'll chip in $200 for one of those tickets.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll buy everybody a ticket. It's a, <laughs> we'll make it one way because we all know they're not going to get there. We all know they're not going to get there. That's that's the way to do it, right? I mean, look, we saw it happen in, in the summer of 2022 when Pete Buttigieg's flight got canceled. You would think that would be the wake-up call. But you need all 435 people to be sitting there, right, to realize they're not going anywhere and have the pilot yeah. come on and go, oh, well... Every time you hear a pilot go, well, you know you're not going anywhere. Yeah, very true.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> the airline industry is going to argue that, sure, you can do this, but it's going to add $100, $150 to a flight, and it's going to hurt the economy, and you're going to have less people traveling.
0: My thanks to Scott. I was flying recently and had a window seat and just happened to look out the window at the wing. And what I saw shocked me. Our pal Gary Leff, founder of viewfromthewing.com, helps to explain that mystery.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth.
0: Gary, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, you did a piece recently which really literally caught my eye because I was on a plane recently and was looking out the window, and my seat happened to be in, in the middle part of the plane over the wing. And what I saw when I looked out the window, and we were about 35,000 feet, I was in—I started inhaling. I was in such shock. Uh, how's that for a lead, right? But I was in such shock, I took out my cell phone, turned on the camera, and just started firing away photographs. I was on board a 787 now, let me tell you what I saw, and then let me tell you what the airline later explained to me, and what the FAA later explained to me. Uh, it was a 787, and for those people who know, that's a plane that's built mostly of composite materials, and you should also know that when airplanes were first built, I mean, we're from the very first days, how were they certified? Well, the manufacturer put a prototype on a, on a test bed, and they were all metal, right, and then took every single component part to failure. That's how they're able to write the, the manuals. That's how they knew what the what the plane could and couldn't do, what its aerodynamic limits were. You know, like you couldn't fly it faster than this, higher than this, hotter than this, wetter than this, whatever, whatever things you want to throw at it. But when Boeing decided to start manufacturing the 787, they went to the FAA and asked permission to do something completely different in terms of the certification process. And strangely enough, the FAA said yes. They asked to be able to certify the plane on computer. They weren't doing that you know, destructive testing. And the FAA said yes. Now, cut to many years later, we now know what composite materials can do, and in some cases, what they can't do. And in some cases, what we're seeing, not just on the 787, but on the Airbus A350, another modern jet built out of mostly composite materials, we're seeing a lot of delamination on the surface of the wings and on other parts of the fuselage. So when I looked out the window, and you saw too because you published a similar photo, Gary, what did I see on the wings? Duct tape! Now... It's a little scary at 35,000 feet to think that your plane is in the air with delamination on the wings fixed by duct tape. Now, for those people who think I'm crazy and making this up, you ran a similar photo, right? Right. And, and as we know, it's
1: not. it looks like duct tape. It's not actually duct tape. Right, it's not. But yes, I ran, I, I, I ran this photo. It was being sent around in social media uh, with you know, millions of views. And this caption says, this is my last time flying Spirit Airlines. But wait a minute. Wait a minute no. That's actually the wing of, of a Boeing 787 and Spirit Airlines doesn't operate any Boeing 787s. They have all Airbus narrowbodies. It wasn't Spirit. Um, but it was the wing of the 787 and it had all this tape over it.
0: And by the way, that particular tape, and you're right, it's not duct tape. It's a little stronger than that. But as a visual image, it's powerful and scary, and it's considered an approved fix by the FAA. Um, right. You
1: know, for, for, for certain things, right? It's, yeah. So it's called speed tape, and it's aluminum pressure-sensitive tape that'll stick to the aircraft's fuselage at uh, you know and, and the wing uh, at high speeds, right? And it's used for minor uh, temporary repairs.
0: However, when you're sitting on a plane at thirty-five thousand feet and looking out the window, it doesn't give you a very comforting feeling. Seeing stuff taped together, um, and I hope the airlines realize this is not really good for for passenger confidence. Um, at the same no, time, it's, in fact, it. I'm oh, sorry, Gary. It,
1: yeah, yeah, it, it's one of the most frequent um, concerns. That passengers express in social media, they snap a photo of their plane and you know post either a question to the airline or a freak out to the world of oh my gosh I can't believe I have to fly in this plane and it's duct taped together and you know then there's this whole have to be this whole explanation of like no it's not duct tape it's FAA approved here's what it's for it looks like a simple at home repair that you might uh, not trust. If you saw it on a car on the road.
0: Gary, we all saw the story about the Delta Airlines plane departing Las Vegas, where it was 100 degree plus weather. They pushed back from the gate, fully loaded plane, and they sat out in the tarmac with no air conditioning on the plane on the ground for over three hours. Not surprisingly, before the plane ever got back to the gate, passengers were complaining of of dizziness. Some passed out, some required medical attention. Uh, It's getting crazy out there. And it was even
1: worse. I mean, so we were talking about onboard temperatures of 114 degrees. We're talking about the passengers saying that the airline failed to provide water and that the lavatories were closed on board for almost three hours that they're trapped. And, you know, Las Vegas, like much of the Southwest, has faced extreme temperatures, you know, phoenix had 25 days over 110 in las vegas we've seen a lot of 118 then when you add mistakes in operations and overloaded airports where you know over scheduled airports that where there's long waits to depart or a mechanical issue and um, we've had some pretty ugly things you had you had passengers removed from the aircraft by paramedics uh, on that uh, delta flight and it hasn't only been Delta that had issues in uh, the Las Vegas heat either.
0: You know, you've got some other compounding issues here because heat affects lift. You have full planes. They have to have their fuel in the planes. Um, And next thing you know, the plane may be too heavy to take off simply because of the outside temperature, number one, or the altitude of the airport. Then number two, they don't turn on their auxiliary power unit to power the air conditioning because that burns fuel which may be needed to be able to get to their alternate airport if they can't make their primary airport, they have to push back from the gate. Why? Because they're going to be first to take off? No, because somebody else needs the gate, but they have no assurance they're going to be taking off anytime soon. It's a perfect storm.
1: It is. And, you know, issues can happen in extreme cold as well. I mean, that was the beginning of the Southwest Airlines meltdown in December when it's simply impossible to have... Uh, ground workers out on the ramp for very long in extreme cold or heat, and you don't have enough staff, and that can create uh, longer waits for you know, aircraft pushback for loading baggage and unloading baggage. You know more congestion at the gate, longer waits for you know fixing uh, air, fixing problems as well. Um, but you know you need to get passengers off a plane uh, in those kinds of conditions. And you know, not leave them on because it's a you know it, it it's a health you know, I'll, I'll threat. With-
0: yeah, I'll, I'll give you some comparison figures. About 20 years ago, many airlines were guilty of literally killing animals that were in cargo holds connecting flights on either extremely hot days or extremely cold days, and these poor dogs and cats were dying of basically heat frustration or worse. And uh, so they passed. Rules that put in what they call temperature moratorium—that no airplane, no airline could could, uh, could—and these were done internally by individual airlines, by the way—that that airlines would not accept your dog or cat for transport on days where the thermometer was above a certain figure or below a certain figure. All right, I get it. Had to be done. What about the temperature moratorium for me and you? I mean. Sustained temperatures inside a cabin of 114 degrees for over 20 minutes is bad enough. Three hours? Now we're talking serious medical problems.
1: That's right. If ground air isn't available for whatever reason, and you mentioned several of them, uh, then you simply can't have passengers in the aircraft for a sustained period of time. Uh, it only does so much to you know, close the aircraft windows. And it is good to keep them closed uh, you know, on on the ground so that the aircraft doesn't heat up. And they ask you to close the windows before you get off and not to open them until you're up in the air. When you're up in the air, they're going to do a much better job of cooling the aircraft. And But if the plane starts off hot, uh, that ground air isn't going to cool it down. Uh, and so managing uh, summer heat is a, is a challenge, especially during you know, a uniquely high heat periods in hot places, uh, but this is something that the airlines you know, know or should know and need conti- better contingency plans for.
0: And, of course, there's something called the tarmac delay rule, which got instituted about 10 years ago because of extreme cold weather that happened in, in airports like Detroit, where people were pushed back from the gate and kept out there in freezing cold weather for more than three hours before just coming back to the gate. And that rule that went into effect, it's still in effect basically says that if you keep passengers out and don't return them within three hours to the gate, that you're liable to fines up to $27,500 per passenger, not per incident.
1: Per passenger.
0: Right. So on a, right. a on a full 737, you're now into seven figures. It's safe to say, and I think the, the figures back me up on this, that in the 10 years we've had that rule, there have been very, very few violations of that rule because the airlines don't want to get penalized. Well, this situation this yeah. happened with Delta in Las Vegas was a clear violation of that rule, and the and the DOT says they're investigating. I don't know how much they need to investigate, just get out a stopwatch and a thermometer. Um, and, yeah, uh, it, it'll,
1: it'll take eighteen months before there's a before there's a uh, uh, an actual uh, report and ruling from you know, from the agency on this. But it's miraculous though, if you're on an aircraft that's delayed like that, how they can't get you off the plane. But come two and a half hours, air stairs miraculously become available.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My thanks to Gary. Remember the famous Joni Mitchell song? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Henry Grabar does. He did the heavy research and then wrote the appropriately titled Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Henry, welcome. Thanks for having me. I mean, when I saw this book, I said, I got to get Henry on the show because... I mean, I live in Los Angeles and New York, but in Los Angeles, of course you live in your car. Uh, everybody's in an Uber if they're not on their own car. You can't get anywhere here without a car. Uh, we live in a car culture, but that's not just Los Angeles. that's if you go to Paris, I mean it's it's the gumball rally in Paris. I mean it's it's, uh, it's crazy. And of course in New York City, where I also live, it's you know you don't you, you pay more for a parking spot in a garage, than most people pay for their homes. Um, it's it's getting crazy. And, of course, you start the book with, uh, with a fight, don't you?
3: Yeah, I start the book with a fight just to remind people perhaps how ridiculous it is, how upset we get over parking. How did it become this emotional, political third rail? Um, because, in fact, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's true that Several dozen people are killed over parking spaces in the United States every year. Um, And I was intrigued by this subject, not just because people fight over it in the street, but because it's a major political fight as well. And um, if you attend any city council meeting where neighbors are discussing new housing, you will undoubtedly hear people complain about the fact that there won't be enough parking. And it seems to me that parking has become an issue that we take so seriously and, and we place so high in terms of our hierarchy of desires for our cityscape that it supersedes almost everything else. And in fact, it what this book shows, I hope, is that it overwhelms our ability to do a lot of the other things uh, that we want to do with our city.
0: You know, it's interesting when you talk about design and when you talk about, about city planning, Let's go back to the to the old days, you know. I, I was doing some research in, in, in preparation to talk to you and, and found out that what when did the parking meter show up? You know, and it's it's funny, most people don't realize where the parking meter started and where it was invented. Oklahoma. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, of all the places it, the <laughs> the West, the Southwest, where you have free ranging everything, that's where they invented the parking meter. So even there They were looking about parking.
3: Well, that's a reminder that at one point, almost every American city, including Oklahoma City, was once so dense and so lively um, that they had a parking problem, as in a shortage of places to park. Very few places today have a bona fide parking shortage. In fact, we've destroyed so much of the American urban landscape to create space to park um, that there, in most cities, you know, there are five, six, seven parking spots per car. And on a national level, um, there are at least uh, four parking spaces for every car. So the parking stock is never more than 25% full. We've built enough parking. Um, But I think that that story about Oklahoma City is, is important because it's a reminder that when the parking meter was invented, it was invented not to make money from drivers, which I think is the way most people think of it, but to organize the curve. Because unless you charge people, for that precious interface between the street and the building, you have no way of uh, coordinating who parks where and for how long. And that's what this Oklahoma City newspaper editor realized, was that the people who were parking all day in the best parking spots in front of the shops and the restaurants were employees who arrived first thing in the morning. And what he realized was just by charging a little bit for that parking, you could get those all-day parkers to park further away and save those prime spots for people who needed to run an errand later in the day.
0: Oh, amazing. We're talking to Henry Grabar. By the way, the, I love the title of this book because, of course, it's dating myself to remind myself it's Joni Mitchell time, right? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And, uh, and of course, we remember that song from the, uh, from the early 70s. But here's the question that I've got, and, and it's, it's part of your book. I mean, we're now charging for something that a lot of people expected to be free.
3: That's right. I, I, You know, I don't know when people really decided that it ought to be free to park their car wherever they went. And not only that it ought to be free, but there ought to be parking right in front of the place they were going. And that parking ought to be available the minute they arrive, because those are standards to which we hold almost no other good or service in our society. And they're really hard to meet. And so in order to meet that expectation, that very high expectation that we have for parking in America we have, again, um, demolished a lot of our older built neighborhoods, including housing, shops, etc., cetera, just to create room for parking. And I think that's that's tragic in a way. And I think one, one of the ironies of parking is that uh, people are virtually unwilling to pay for it, uh, but it actually costs a lot of money to build. And so by requiring um, places to build parking, which is what most jurisdictions in the United States do, we have ensured that just about everything we build has a gigantic tax added onto it. And that tax goes to pay for more parking spaces. And that's true of housing, even if uh, you own a car, if you live in say uh, Dallas or something like that, you know, you're going to pay for the parking when you pay for your apartment because that's the law. Um, And that doesn't leave people a lot of choice. And it's also ensured that we've actually created an environment where We have more parking than we need, and we have so much parking that it actually makes it impossible not to drive. And this is a phenomenon that you see in Los Angeles, by the way, when you're walking along a a commercial strip and every shop is separated from the next one by a giant parking lot, and that doesn't make for a pleasant pedestrian experience, and it makes people want to drive. And then, of course, once they're driving, they need more parking.
0: Of course. In Los Angeles, if you walk, you get pulled over by the police.
3: Right. I suspicious mean, behavior.
0: A, a sure. very suspicious. How could you possibly be walking when everybody else is in their car? But, you know, that brings up an interesting point for me in terms of the travel aspect of this, because once you're in a car or once you are going to be using a car, the whole idea of parking dictates your schedule. It dictates how you how you work your time because you have to plan for where am I going to park? How fast can I get there? What time do I have to leave so I can assure myself I'll find a place to park? Right?
3: Yeah, it's crazy. I was talking to a guy for the book who runs a a company that helps people find parking in advance. And he was saying how funny it is and how weird it is that we treat parking this way. It's like you would never take off on an airplane and not know if there was going to be an airport for you to land in when you got there. And you would never... Train would never leave a station without knowing that there was going to be a platform to arrive at. But that's how we—that's how we do it often when we when we drive somewhere and we just we get a chance. And I think this is one of the reasons that people seem to get so fed up about parking is that it's not included in your in your driving directions in your driving time. And so you know, Google Maps will tell you that you're going to be somewhere in 19 minutes, but they won't tell you exactly how to park. It remains this kind of um, unexplored geography. And I think that brings a lot of tension, just that uncertainty, right? Um, But again, this is a problem we have created for ourselves by making it almost impossible in most places to get around any other way.
0: You know, we, we, parking to us now is a is a precious commodity. You know, it, I have to laugh because in, in the travel experience now, you mentioned earlier, Henry, that, you know, there's no road manual about, you know, how you're going to park or what, what kind of parking you're going to find when you get there. There are now airports that allow you not only to find your parking spot in advance, I mean, literally, you can actually pick your spot. You reserve it now at some airports. It's, it's that crazy because if you don't, you're driving around in circles and maybe miss your flight.
3: I think that's a very positive development. I mean, one of the things that I learned working on this book was that a lot of traffic is caused just by people looking for parking. And so this is one of the reasons that it makes a lot of sense to charge for parking in locations where um, parking is scarce, right? Because um, if you can charge a price for street parking that's high enough that suddenly there's an empty space on every block, because you've charged enough for parking that people who I don't want to pay that price, you know, park somewhere else or maybe they carpool or they take the bus or something like that. Then you actually cut down on the driving miles in the neighborhood by a lot. because a lot of driving miles are composed just of people looking for parking spaces. And if they don't find a parking space, often they'll double park and that will create even more traffic. So charging for parking and, and reserving parking in advance and just thinking a little more systemically about how we approach this subject is a great way to decrease a lot of the negative externalities associated with driving, I'm talking about congestion, accident, um, pollution, all this stuff um, can be, can be ameliorated by, by charging a little bit for those parking spaces.
0: Not to mention parking rage, right?
3: Parking rage, right. Yeah. That's a, another huge externality. And, and I, again, I think the, the actual anecdote of people fighting over a parking space with a baseball bat, which is what opens the book is, um, representative of a certain type of, of parking rage, but I think the more important part of it is actually the way that people will um, oppose new neighbors moving into their neighborhood because they're concerned about the parking supply. I mean, parking has almost replaced any other concern you might have as a reason to say this neighborhood is full. And that's become a serious problem in this country in a lot of cities that people don't want new neighbors living near, near them. and And a big reason for that is is there afraid that those new neighbors are going to take their parking spaces.
0: <laughs> Not to mention territoriality. But there's something else going on, too, Henry, and I want to bring this up. And that is, in many countries around the world, they're looking at the economic impact of automobiles and parking. They're looking at the environmental impact of automobiles and parking. And they're transforming the way they approach public transit, and they're making their public transit systems free. They're doing that to basically get people out of their cars and, uh, and and basically not congesting those cities. We're seeing it all over Europe now. Uh, we're now starting to see it in the United States. Kansas City uh, went to all free public transit back in 2019. We're seeing it in other cities in Virginia now. Boston and New York are now looking at bus routes that they're going to try to make for free just to get people out of their cars and stop the parking mess.
3: Yeah, I think that's an interesting strategy. It, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's going to work, Peter, and I'll tell you why. I think the reason people use transit um, is is sometimes because they do not have any other way of getting around. That's a certain type of person who uses transit. Uh, But the person we want to try and convince to get out of their car and get on transit, that person is not somebody who's going to use transit because it's free. That person is going to use transit because it's convenient and it's frequent and it takes them where they need to go when they need to go there. And so those are the improvements that I think we need to make to our transit systems to get people to decide to make trips other than by car. The other component of it is, of course, that parking is enormously subsidized. I mean, when you drive, you are n- almost never paying for parking. But somebody pays for that parking. Somebody pays to build it, right, and maintain it. And uh, and, and all that all that money that goes into that parking, um, that functions as a tremendous subsidy for car ownership that we, we rarely even think about. But it turns out that if you charge even a little bit for parking, at, for example, an office, you have a massive effect on the commuting decisions people make. Not only are they going to come to work in a carpool or a bus, et cetera, but even go so far as to influence the way people think about car ownership, uh, which is to say, just by ensuring that we have all this free parking that's required by law, we've massively distorted the market uh, for transportation choices and introduced an enormous subsidy in the hundreds of billions of dollars for driving.
0: Wow. By the way, there's one more thing I want to talk about. And that is city planning in, 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 its, in essence, because when you were doing some research into Hurricane Harvey back in 2017, what did you discover about flooding patterns? Well, this is
3: maybe the, the, the aspect of parking that I think is intuitive to most people, but, but still gets overlooked, which is that it takes up an absolutely massive amount of land. I mean, when we think about car culture, the parking space is spatially the greatest impact of the automobile on the American landscape. And in cities that have a ton of parking, that have grown really quickly, like Houston, these parking spaces have started to actually influence the hydrology of the landscape because so much of the land has been paved over. So when you get a really torrential rainstorm like happened in Houston uh, for three years straight, culminating in Hurricane Harvey, um, these parking lots actually take on a role in shaping where that stormwater goes and contribute to worsening flooding in neighborhoods that have seen a lot of pavement amazing. put down. So, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, Henry, and you see this in a lot of cities as
0: well. My thanks to Henry, to Scott Marowitz, and to Gary Leff. And my thanks to you for listening to this ion on Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
3: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.